0: CHAPTER Eight OF THE DESERT BY JOHN CHARLES VAN DYKE. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY SUE ANDERSON. CACTUS AND GREASEWOOD. NATURE SEEMS A BENEVOLENT OR A MALEVOLENT GODDESS, JUST AS OUR OWN INADEQUATE VISION HAPPENS TO SEE HER. IF WE HAVE EYES ONLY FOR HER CREATIVE BEAUTIES, WE THINK HER ALL GOODNESS if we see only her power of destruction, we incline to think she is all evil. With what infinite care and patience, worthy only of a good goddess, does she build up the child, the animal, the bird, the tree, the flower? How wonderfully she fits each for its purpose, rounding it with strength, energy, and grace, and beautifying it with a prodigality of colors. For twenty years she works night and day to bring the child to perfection. For twenty days she toils upon the burnished wings of some insect buzzing in the sunlight. For twenty hours she paints the gold upon the petals of the dandelion. And then what? What of the next twenty? Does she leave her handiwork to take care of itself until an unseen dragon called decay comes along to destroy it? not at all. The good goddess has a hand that builds up, yes, and she has another hand that takes down. The marvellous skill of the one has its complement, its counterpart in the other. Block by block she takes apart the mosaic, with just as much deftness as she put it together. Those first twenty years of our life we were allowed to sap blood and strength from our surroundings the last twenty years of our life, our surroundings are allowed to sap blood and strength from us. It is nature's plan, and it is carried out without any feeling. With the same indifferent spirit that she planted in us an eye to see or an ear to hear, she afterward plants a microbe to breed and a cancer to eat. She in herself is both growth and decay, the virile and healthy things of the earth are hers, and so too are disease, dissolution, and death. The flower and the grass spring up, they fade, they wither, and nature neither rejoices in the life nor sorrows in the death. She is neither good nor evil, she is only a great law of change that passeth understanding. The gorgeous pageantry of the earth with all its beauty, the life thereon with all its hopes and fears and struggles, and we, a part of the universal whole, are brought up from the dust to dance on the green in the sunlight for an hour, and then the procession that comes after us turns the sod, and we creep back to Mother Earth. All, all to dust again, and no man to this day knoweth the why thereof." One is continually assailed with queries of this sort whenever and wherever he begins to study nature. He never ceases to wonder why she would take such pains to foil her own plans and bring to naught her own creations. Why did she give the flying fish such a willowy tail and such long fins? Why did she labor so industriously to give him power of flight, when at the same time she was giving another fish in the sea greater strength and a bird in the air greater swiftness wherewith to destroy him. Why should she make the tarantula such a powerful engine of destruction when she was in the same hour making his destroyer the tarantula wasp? And always, here in the desert, the question comes up, why should nature give these shrubs and plants Such powers of endurance and resistance, and then surround them by heat, drought, and the attacks of desert animals. It is existence for a day, but sooner or later the growth goes down and is beaten into dust. The individual dies, yes, but not the species. Perhaps now we are coming closer to an understanding of nature's method it is the species that she designs to last for a period at least and the individual is of no great importance merely a sustaining factor one among millions requiring continual renewal it is a small matter whether there are a thousand acres of greasewood more or less but it is important that the family be not extinguished it grows readily in the most barren spots is very abundant and very hardy and hence is protected only by an odor and a varnish on the contrary take the bisnaga a rather rare cactus it has only a thin short tap-root therefore it has an enormous upper reservoir in which to store water and a most formidable armor of fish-hook shaped spines that no beast or bird can penetrate remove the danger which threatens the extinction of the family, and immediately nature removes the defensive armor. On the desert, for instance, the yucca has a thorn like a point of steel. Follow it from the desert into the high tropical tablelands of Mexico, where there is plenty of soil and moisture, plenty of chance for yuccas to thrive, and you will find it turned into a tree, and the thorn merely a dull blade ending. Follow the saguaro and the pitahaya into the tropics again, and with their cousin, the organ cactus, you find them growing a soft thorn that would hardly penetrate clothing. Abundance of soil and rain, abundance of other vegetation for browsing animals, and there is no longer need of protection. With it, the family would increase too rapidly so it seems that nature desires neither increase nor decrease in the species she wishes to maintain the status quo and for the sake of keeping up the general healthfulness and virility of her species she requires that there shall be change in the component parts each must suffer not a sea change but a chemical change and passing into liquids gasses or dusts still from the grave help on the universal plan so it is that though nature dips each one of her desert growths into the sticks to make them invulnerable yet ever she holds them by the heel and leaves one point open to the destroying arrow yet it is remarkable how nature designs and prepares the contest the struggle for life THAT IS CONTINUALLY GOING ON IN HER WORLD. HOW WONDERFULLY SHE ARMS BOTH OFFENSE AND DEFENSE. WHAT GROUND SHE CHOOSES FOR THE CONFLICT. WHAT STERN conditions SHE LAYS DOWN. GIVEN A WASTE OF SAND AND ROCK, GIVEN A HEAT SO INTENSE THAT UNDER A SUMMER SUN THE STONES WILL BLISTER A BAREFOOT LIKE HOT IRON. GIVEN PERHAPS TWO OR THREE INCHES OF RAIN IN A TWELVE MONTH, and what vegetation could one expect to find growing there obviously none at all but no nature insists that something shall fight heat and drought even here and so she designs strange growths that live a starved life and bring forth after their kind with much labour hardiest of the hardy are these plants and just as fierce in their way as the wild cat. You cannot touch them for the claw. They have no idea of dying without a struggle. You will find every one of them admirably fitted to endure. They are marvelous engines of resistance. The first thing that all these plants have to fight against is heat, drought, and the evaporation of what little moisture they may have and here nature has equipped them with ingenuity and cunning. Not all are designed alike, to be sure, but each after its kind is good. There are the cacti, for example, that will grow where everything else perishes. Why? For one reason, because they have geometrical forms that prevent loss from evaporation by contracting a minimum surface for a given bulk of tissue. There is no waste, no unnecessary exposure of surface. Then there are some members of the family, like the old man cactus, that have thick coatings of spines and long, hairy growths that prevent the evaporation of moisture by keeping off the wind. Then again, the cacti have no leaves to tempt the sun. Many of the desert growths are so constructed. Even such a tree as the lluvia has needles rather than leaves, though it does put forth a row of tiny leaves near the end of the needle, and when we come to examine the ordinary trees, such as the mesquite, the dipua, the palo brea, the palo verde, and all the acacia family, we find they have very narrow leaves that have a fashion of hanging diagonally to the sun and thus avoiding the direct rays. Nature is determined that there shall be no unnecessary exhaust of moisture through foliage. The large leafed bush or tree does not exist. The best shade to be found on the desert is under the mesquite, and unless it is very large, the sun falls through it easily enough. As an extra precaution, some shrubs are given a shellac-like sap or gum, with which they varnish their leaves and make evaporation almost impossible the ordinary greasewood is an example of this and perhaps because of its varnish it is with the cacti the hardiest of all the desert growths it is found wherever anything living is found and flourishes under the fiercest heat its leaves always look bright and have a sticky feeling about them as though recently shellacked, there are other growths that seem to have a fine sense of discretion in the matter of danger for they let fall all their leaves at the first approach of drought. The ocatilla or candlewood, as it is sometimes called, puts out a long row of bright leaves along its stems after a rain, but as soon as drought comes, it sheds them hastily and then stands for months in the sunlight a bundle of bare sticks soaked with a resin that will burn with fire but will not evaporate with heat the sangre de dragón sometimes called sangre en grado does the same thing but nature's most common device for the protection and preservation of her desert brood is to supply them with wonderful facilities for finding and sapping what moisture there is, and conserving it in tanks and reservoirs. The roots of the greasewood and the mesquite are almost as powerful as the arms of an octopus, and they are frequently three times the length of the bush or tree they support. They will bore their way through rotten granite to find a damp ledge almost as easily as a diamond drill, and they will pry rocks from their foundations as readily as the wisteria wrenches the ornamental woodwork from the roof of a porch they are always thirsty and they are always running here and there in the search for moisture a vertical section of their underground structure revealed by the cutting away of a river bank or wash is usually a great surprise one marvels at the great network of roots required to support such a very little growth above ground. Yet this network serves a double purpose. It not only finds and gathers what moisture there is, but stores it in its roots, feeding the top growth with it economically, not wastefully. It has no notion of sending too much moisture up to the sunlight and the air. Cut a twig and it will often appear very dry. Cut a root, and you will find it moist. The storage reservoir below ground is not an unusual method of supplying water to the plant. Many of the desert growths have it. Perhaps the most notable example of it is the wild gourd. There is little more than an enormous taproot that spreads out turnip-shaped AND IS IN SIZE OFTEN AS LARGE AROUND AS A MAN'S BODY. IT HOLDS WATER IN ITS PULpy TISSUE FOR MONTHS AT A TIME, AND WHILE ALMOST EVERYTHING ABOVE GROUND IS PARCHED AND DYING, THE VINES AND LEAVES OF THE GOURD, FED FROM THE RESERVOIR BELOW, WILL GO ON GROWING AND THE FLOWERS CONTINUE BLOOMING IN THE MOST UNRUFFLED SERENITY. IN THE SONORA DESERTS THERE IS A CACTUS OR A BUSH its name i have never heard growing from a root that looks almost like a hornet's nest the root is half wood half vegetable and is again a water reservoir like the root of the gourd but there are reservoirs above ground quite as interesting as those below the tall fluted column of the saguaro sometimes fifty feet high is little more than an upright cistern for holding moisture. Its support within is a series of sticks arranged in cylindrical form and held together by some fiber, some tissue, and a great deal of saturated pulp. Drive a stick into it after a rain, and it will run sap almost like the maguey from which the Indians distill mezcal. All the cacti conserve water in their lobes or columns, or at the base near the ground so too the spanish bayonets the yuccas the prickly pears and the cholas many of the shrubs and trees like the sangre de dragon and the torote have enlarged or thickened barks to hold and supply water if you cut them the sap runs readily when it congeals it forms a gum which heals over the wound and once more prevents evaporation existence for the plants would be impossible without such inventions plant life of every kind requires some moisture all the time it is an error to suppose because they grow in the so-called rainless desert that therefore they exist without water they gather and husband it during wet periods for use during dry periods and in doing so they seem to display almost as much intelligence as a squirrel or an ant does in storing food for winter consumption. Is nature's task completed when she has provided the plants with reservoirs of water and tap roots to pump for them? By no means. How long would a tank of moisture exist in the desert if unprotected from the desert animals? THE mule DEER LIVES HERE, AND HE CAN GO FOR WEEKS WITHOUT WATER, BUT HE WILL TAKE IT EVERY DAY IF HE CAN GET IT. AND THE COYOTE CAN RUN THE HILLS INDEFINITELY, WITH LITTLE OR NO MOISTURE, BUT HE WILL EAT A WATERMELON, RIND AND ALL, AND WITH GREAT RELISH WHEN THE OPPORTUNITY OFFERS. THE SAGUARO, THE BISNAGA, THE CHOLA, AND THE PANCAKE-LOBED PRICKLY PEAR, would have a short life and not a merry one if they were left to the mercy of the desert prowler. As it is, they are sometimes sadly worried about their roots by rabbits and in their lobes by the deer. It seems almost incredible, but it is not the less a fact that deer and desert cattle will eat the chola, fruit, stem, and trunk, though it bristles with spines that will draw blood from the human hand at the slightest touch. Nature knows very well that the attack will come, and so she provides her plants with various different defenses. The most common weapon which she gives them is the spine or thorn. Almost everything that grows has it, and its different forms are many. They are all of them sharp as a needle, and some of them have saw edges that rip anything with which they come in contact the grasses and those plants akin to them like the yucca and the magae, are often both saw-edged and spine-pointed all the cacti have thorns some straight some barbed like a harpoon some curved like a hook there are cholas that have a sheath covering the thorn a scabbard to the sword AND WHEN ANYTHING PUSHES AGAINST IT, THE SHEATH IS LEFT STICKING IN THE WOUND. THE DIFFERENT FORMS OF THE BISNAGA ARE LITTLE MORE THAN VEGETABLE PORCUPINES. THEY BRISTLE WITH QUILLS OR HAVE HOOK-SHAPED THORNS THAT CATCH AND HOLD THE INTRUDER. THE SAGUARO HAS NOT SO MANY SPINES, BUT THEY ARE SO ARRANGED THAT YOU CAN HARDLY STRIKE THE CYLINDER WITHOUT STRIKING THE THORNS the cacti are defended better than the other growths because they have more to lose and are consequently more subject to attack and yet there is one notable exception the crucifixion thorn is a bush or tree somewhat like the palo verde except that it has no leaf it is a thorn and little else each small twig runs out and ends in a sharp spike of which the branch is but the supporting shaft it bears in august a small yellow flower but this grows out of the side of the spike in fact the whole shrub seems created for no other purpose than the glorification of the thorn as a thorn tree bush plant and grass great and small alike each has its sting for the intruder You can hardly stoop to pick a desert flower or pull a bunch of small grass without being aware of a prickle on your hand. Nature seems to have provided a whole arsenal of defensive weapons for these poor, starved plants of the desert. Not any of the lovely growths of the earth, like the lilies and the daffodils, are so well defended, and she has given them not only armor, but a spirit of tenacity and stubbornness wherewith to carry on the struggle. Cut out the purslane and the ironweed from the garden walk, and it springs up again and again, contending for life. Put heat, drought, and animal attack upon the desert shrubs, and they fight back like the higher forms of organic life. How typical they are of everything in and about the desert! There is but one word to describe it, and that word fierce. I shall have worn threadbare before I have finished these chapters. We have not yet done with enumerating the defenses of these plants. The bushes, like the greasewood and the sage, have not the bulk of body to grow the thorn. They are too slight, too rambling in make-up. Besides, their reservoirs are protected by being in their roots under the ground. But nature has not left their tops wholly at the mercy of the deer. Take the leaf of the sage and crush it in your hand. The odor is anything but pleasant. No animal except the jackrabbit, no bird except the sage hen, will eat it. And no human being will eat either the rabbit or the hen, if he can get anything else because of the rank sage flavor rub the greasewood in your hand and it feels harsh and brittle the resinous varnish of the leaves gives it a sticky feeling and a disagreeable odor again nothing on the desert will touch it cut or break a twig of the sangre de dragon and a red sap like blood runs out touch it to the tongue and it proves the most powerful of astringents The Indians use it to cauterize bullet wounds. Again, no animal will touch it. Half the plants on the desert put forth their leaves with impunity. They are not disturbed by either browsers or grazers. Some of them are poisonous. Many of them are cathartic or emetic. Nearly all of them are disagreeable to the taste. So it seems with spines, thorns, barbs, resins, varnishes, and odorous smells, nature has armed her desert own very effectually. And her expenditure of energy may seem singularly disproportionate to the result attained. The little vegetation that grows in the waste may not seem worthwhile, may seem insignificant compared with the great care bestowed upon it, but nature does not think so. To her, The cactus of the desert is just as important in its place as the arrowy pine on the mountain. She means that something shall grow and bear fruit after its own kind, even on the gravel beds of the Colorado. She means that the desert shall have its covering, scanty though it be, just the same as the well-watered lands of the tropics. But are they useful, these desert growths? certainly they are, just as useful as the pine tree or the potato plant. To be sure, man cannot saw them into boards or cook them in a pot, but then nature has other animals besides man to look after, other uses for her products than supporting human life. She toils and spins for all alike, and man is not her special care the desert vegetation answers her purposes and who shall say her purposes have ever been other than wise are they beautiful these plants and shrubs of the desert now just what do you mean by that word beautiful do you mean something of regular form something smooth and pretty are you dragging into nature some remembrances of classic art and are you looking for the dionysus face The deriferous form among these trees and bushes if so the desert will not furnish you too much of beauty but if you mean something that has a distinct character something appropriate to its setting something admirably fitted to a designed end as in art the peasants of millet or the burghers of rembrandt and rodin then the desert will show forth much that people nowadays are beginning to think beautiful. Mind you, perfect form and perfect color are not to be despised. Neither shall you despise perfect fitness and perfect character. The desert plants, every one of them, have very positive characters, and I am not certain but that many of them are interesting and beautiful, even in form and color. No doubt it is an acquired taste, that leads one to admire greasewood and cactus. But can anyone be blind to the graceful form of the maguey, or better still the yucca with its tall stock rising like a shaft from a bowl and capped at the top by nodding creamy flowers? On the mountains and the mesas the saguaro is so common that perhaps we overlook its beauty of form. Yet its lines are as sinuous as those of a Moslem minaret, its flutings as perfect as those of a doric column often and often you see it standing on a ledge of some rocky peak like the lone shaft of a ruined temple on a greek headland and by the way of contrast what could be more lovely than the waving lightness the drooping gracefulness of the lluvia di oro the swaying tossing Nuvia de oro well called the shower of gold It is one of the most beautiful of the desert trees, with its white skin like the northern birch, its long needles like the pine, and the downward sweep of its branches like the willow, a strange wild tree that seems to shun all society, preferring to dwell like a hermit among the rocks. It roots itself in the fissures of broken granite, and it seems at its happiest when it can let down its shower of gold over some precipice. There are other tree forms like the palo verde and the mesquite that are not wanting in a native grace, and yet it may as well be admitted that most of the trees and bushes are lacking in height mass and majesty. It is no place for large growths that reach up to the sun. The heat and drought are too great and tend to make form angular and grotesque but these very conditions that dwarf form perhaps enhance color by distorting it in an analogous manner when plants are starved for water and grow in thin poor soil they often put on colors that are abnormal even unhealthy because of starvation perhaps the little green of the desert is a sallow green and for the same reason The lobes of the prickly pear are pale green, dull yellow, sad pink or livid mauve. The prickly pear seems to take all colors dependent upon the poverty or the mineral character of the ground where it grows. In that respect, perhaps it is influenced in the same way as the party-colored hydrangea of the eastern dooryard. All the cacti are brilliant in the flowers they bear, The top of the bisnaga, in summer, is at first a mass of yellow, then bright orange, finally dark red. The saguaro bears a purple flower, and the chola, the ocatilla, the pitahaya, come along with pink or gold or red or blue flowers. And again, all the bushes and trees in summer put forth showers of color, graceful masses of petaled cups that look more like flowers grown in a meadow, than blossoms grown on a tree. In June, the Palo Verde is a great ball of yellow gold, but there is a variety of it with a blue-green bark that grows a blossom almost like an eastern violet. And down in Sonora, one is dazzled by the splendor of the Guayacan or Gualacan, which throws out blossoms half blue and half red all the commoner growths like the sage the mesquite the palo fierro and the palo blanco are blossom bearers in fact everything that grows at all in the desert puts forth in season some bright little flag of color in the mass they make little show but examined in the part they are interesting because of their nurture their isolation and their peculiarity of form and color The conditions of life have perhaps contorted them, have paled or grayed or flushed or made morbid their coloring, but they are all of them beautiful. Beautiful color is usually unhealthy color, as we have already suggested. Aside from the blossoms upon bush and tree, there are few bright petals shining in the desert. It is no place for flowers. They are too delicate and are usually wanting in tap root and armor. If they spring up, they are soon cut down by drought or destroyed by animals. Many tales are told of the flowers that grow on the waste after the rains, but I have not seen them, though I have seen the rains. There are no lupins, phycelias, penstemons, poppies, or yellow violets. Occasionally one sees the wild verbena, or patches of the evening primrose, OR UP IN THE SWALES THE LITTLE BABY BLUE-EYE GROWING ALL ALONE, OR PERHAPS THE YELLOW MIMULUS, BUT ALL TOLD THEY DO NOT MAKE UP A VERY STRONG CONTINGENT. THE SALT BUSH THAT LOOKS THE COLOR OF SCOTCH HEATHER OUTBULKS THEM ALL, AND YET IS NOT CONSPICUOUSLY APPARENT. HIGHER UP IN THE HILLS AND ALONG THE MESAS, ONE OFTEN MEETS WITH MANY STRANGE FLOWERS, some fiery red and some with spines like the Canadian thistle, but not down in the hot valleys of the desert. Nor are there many grasses of consequence, aside from a small curled grass and the heavy sacaton that grow in bunches upon isolated portions of the desert. By isolated I mean that, for some unknown reason, there are tracts on the desert seemingly sacred to certain plants, some to chola, some to yuccas, some to greasewood, some to saguaros, some to sacaton grass. It seems to be a desert oddity that the vegetation does not mix or mingle to any great extent. There are seldom more than four or five kinds of growth to be found in one tract. It is even noticeable in the lichens. One mountain range will have all gray lichens on its northern walls, another range will have all orange lichens and still another will be mottled by patches of coal-black lichens strange growths of a strange land heat drought and starvation gnawing at their vitals month in and month out and yet how determined to live how determined to fulfill their destiny they keep fighting off the elements the animals the birds never by day or by night do they lose the armor or drop the spear point. And yet, with all the struggle, they serenely blossom in season, perpetuate their kinds, and hand down the struggle to the newer generation, with no jot of vigor abated, no tittle of hope dissipated. Strange growths indeed, and yet strange, perhaps, only to us who have never known their untrumpeted history. End of chapter 8